This week on Global Reboot. The biggest challenge is there's just not enough hours in the day. There was no way I could work. You're having to choose between family and your career like never before. Each day I'm not working, each day I'm not using my skills. My career is a big part of me and um, it's not something I, I want to let go of. My husband just simply makes more money and gets health insurance. My manager that he didn't want to hear my children. Our society, I'm not even myself. Like myself. Oh, we just they call just call back to the world. It's very frustrating. I don't know the line. This past year and a half has changed the way we live and work in so many fundamental ways. And yet, what hasn't changed is how work around the house and family care disproportionately falls on women. Hello and welcome to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. On each episode, we look at old problems in new ways. And today we're tackling one of society's most persistent problems, gender inequality. I'm joined by Rachel Vogelstein. Rachel's a staunch advocate for women and girls and serves as director of the Women in Foreign Policy program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Rachel, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's begin with this. The last year, year and a half, it's been awful for everyone with the uncertainty, the health crises, lockdowns. But in country after country and household after household, women have suffered more than men. Can you explain that? The pandemic unmasked deep structural inequities between women and men, in particular in the workplace. We see an entire generation of gains in the workforce for women is in danger of being lost. We also see a staggering rise in reports of intimate partner violence, So the lockdowns that were really intended to help safeguard public health and safety, uh, in fact, for many women who were then trapped at home in an abusive situation, actually made things more dangerous. That's just terrible. And this was obviously across the board as well, not just in the United States, but we've heard similar reports from countries all over the world. That's right. Those are global phenomena. So let's talk about the jobs aspect of it, because, of course, women have disproportionately lost jobs, as you've pointed out. But new jobs, when they get created eventually as we emerge from the pandemic, my guess is what will happen is that they will mostly go to men, right? Well, what the pandemic has really put a spotlight on are the existing structural imbalances between women and men in the workplace. And there are three in particular that I would highlight. The first is caregiving. So time use surveys around the world show that women spend more time on unpaid care work, including child care, elder care, care for the ill, than men. So this gender gap in unpaid work, which predates the pandemic, inhibits women's ability to compete and earn alongside men in the labor force. During the pandemic, as schools and childcare centers closed, this disparity grew even larger, forcing an exodus of women from the labor force who are often forced to choose between caring for their families and earning a living. The second structural inequity I'd highlight is occupational segregation. So women, it turns out, are significantly more likely than men to be concentrated into low-wage occupations. And these sectors were disproportionately hit hard Mm. 
during the pandemic. And in the developing world, women typically work more than men in the informal economy as domestic workers or as market vendors, for example, and have very little protection against sudden unemployment. The third structural inequity, financial inclusion. Globally, women have only 77% of the access to financial services that men do. This gap means that women are less likely than men to benefit from stimulus support from their governments. So these existing structural inequities were magnified during the Mm. pandemic. But the truth is, as we look to a global recovery, we need to not only build back to where we were, but we really do need to build back better and Mm. resolve these underlying structural barriers. Right, exactly, because this could happen again. If you're in that position, you are always going to be vulnerable the next time there is any crisis. So I guess the question then is, we know we need to build back better. How do we do that? What are the lessons that the pandemic has taught us? And what are world leaders trying to do to begin to bridge these gaps? It's not only a human rights issue, it's an economic issue. And recovering from the worst economic disruption that we've seen since World War II will require drawing on the economic potential of 100% of the population, not half. So there's really two areas that I would highlight where we need to see more action from governments, from the private sector. The first is investing in the care economy. While some countries spend a significant percentage of GDP on child care, Sweden comes to mind at 1.1%, mm-hmm. most countries don't. The share is only 0.01% in Mexico and 0.05% wow. in the United States. So governments can really do a lot to address this gap. They can help finance a more professionalized and better compensated child care industry. Governments can adopt tax policies that encourage spouses to work. And they can also encourage employers to strengthen family-friendly policies like part-time programs, flexible work, paid family leave, in order to support workers experiencing an increased child care burden during the pandemic, but also beyond. The other area where governments can be doing much more in partnership with the private sector is in the area of financial inclusion. To close the gender gaps in financial inclusion that we talked about earlier, governments can invest more in digital infrastructure, particularly in emerging economies. In India, for example, emergency payments were delivered directly to 200 million women. So building up that digital infrastructure would make a big difference. And also addressing gender stereotypes that inhibit women's access to mobile phones Mm. and to help improve digital literacy. You know, the points you make, Rachel, and you argue them so eloquently, you've written about these issues in foreign policy in the past, of course, I should point out. Why aren't leaders listening? I think traditionally, gender inequality and women's issues have been thought of as ancillary to the core domestic and foreign policy concerns that are at the top of the agenda, prosperity, stability, security. Women's issues are not ancillary to those core interests. Gender equality actually furthers those core interests. So investing in gender equality is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart and strategic thing to do because it is an issue that affects economic growth. 
And the same thing is true when it comes to security. We have often thought about women's participation in peace and security issues and processes as a nice-to-do rather than a must-do. But we have plenty of evidence that shows that when women are at the table, whether it's at peace processes, where we see that women's inclusion makes it more likely that warring parties will forge an agreement in the first place and significantly more likely that a peace agreement will last for at least 15 years, or whether we're talking about the private sector where we see that there are greater returns to the bottom line when we have Mm -hmm. women in leadership and diverse groups. Right. And it's probably no coincidence, is it, that um, if you look at many of the countries that have emerged from the pandemic with lower caseloads, better responses nationally, those countries have been led by women. I mean, I'm thinking of New Zealand, for example, but so many other examples of countries that have emerged with some credit tend to be led by women or have women in senior positions who are able to sort of point to many of the things that you've been talking about today as policy measures that countries need to adopt. It turns out that women's participation at the table or in leadership positions matters not only because it's the fair thing to do, but also because we have a lot to learn from women's leadership. That was definitely true in this pandemic. Countries led by women fared better during the pandemic as compared to countries led by men. And in part, that was because women were making slightly different decisions in different ways. Women were more likely as leaders to be more conservative about lives saved and to shut down earlier as compared to men who were more conservative about the economy and wanted to keep the economy open longer. But it turned out in this instance that shutting down earlier meant that the virus was relatively under control as compared to places where the shutdowns happen later. And then the entire economy was able to rebound faster. So in this instance, it's not even a question of of whose decisions were better, but rather, can we think of a world where the full complement and diversity of the talent and information that we have to bear is available at a decision-making table so that the best possible decisions and outcomes are made? You know, it's been, I think, 26 years now since the historic Beijing platform when Hillary Clinton, who you've worked with, said... That human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. And since then, the world has made really important advances in gender equity and dramatically more countries criminalize domestic violence than did in the 1990s. Maternal mortality has dropped by almost 50%. The gender gap in primary schooling is mostly gone. But challenges remain. Women's participation in the labor force, as we've been talking about, uh, has actually dropped a little bit in the last 25 years. So where you sit, and because you research this uh, from, from so many different angles, what are the next steps in the fight for gender equity? Well, you're absolutely right. We have seen a lot of progress. But in addition to the progress that you've outlined, there have been some areas of serious stagnation. One is certainly women's participation in the economy. The structural inequities we've been talking about that have been magnified by the pandemic predate it. And the notion that 26 years after the Beijing conference that the gender gap in labor force participation 
is virtually unchanged and, in fact, in this crisis is actually getting wider, that's far too little progress in the amount of time that's passed. Women's political participation is another area of relative stagnation. In 1995, there were 12 nations with women leaders. Today, there are 22. That's out of 193 nations. So that's not exactly progress to write home about. And then the last area that I would highlight where we really need to accelerate progress is security. One in three women around the world still experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime. That statistic has not changed in 26 years. And when it comes to women's participation and security processes, we continue to see security defined in a way that excludes the experiences of 50% of the population. What we call peacetime is a scenario where one in three women experience violence. So there's a lot of work to be done in these three areas, women's economic participation, political participation, and women's security, if we're to close many of the gaps that were outlined in Beijing 26 years ago. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about is women in high office and glass ceilings that exist. And, you know, in the last few years, we know that record numbers of women candidates have sought political office in places like Afghanistan, India, Iraq, Ireland, uh, Lebanon. But I've always thought as well that sometimes the glass ceiling conversation in politics can also be a red herring. And this might be because I grew up in South Asia and in India, where in that region, for example, every country seems to have had a female leader well before Western countries did. Uh, Bandra Tileke was, I believe, one of the first elected women leaders um, in Sri Lanka. Uh, Bangladesh had Sheikh Hasina and Khalid Azia. Uh, Pakistan had Benazir Bhutto. Uh, India had Indira Gandhi. These are women in the highest office in the land. And this was decades ago. And yet each of these countries, they fare so poorly when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to several metrics of gender equity. What's going on? Well, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that electing one woman head of state is not enough to achieve significant differences in policymaking. For many of the women that you mentioned, if not all, the parliament with which the head of state needs to work is still disproportionately dominated by men. On average, women comprise only a quarter of parliamentary seats around the world. Uh, There's also social science research that suggests that When women reach a critical mass of 30 percent, whether that means 30 percent in parliament or whether that means that you're no longer the first woman head of state, but you're the second or even the third, that when you get to that threshold, you start to see changes in decision making. And it makes sense. If you think about a table with 10 leaders around, one of them is a woman Suddenly, that woman stands for all women. There's a lot of pressure on that woman to conform. Now imagine there's two women at that table. They might be compared to one another. They might be competing with one another. It's when you have three women at that table of 10 that you start to see that women at the table is actually not uncommon. It starts to feel 
more like the norm. And that's when you start to see differences in decision making. So I would say that having one woman at the top is incredibly important symbolically, but that's not enough. We should be looking for gender parity at every decision making table. Indeed. Now, on a related issue, Rachel, you and a co-author, Megan Stone, have a new book out on July 13. It's called Awakening, Me Too and the Global Fight for Women's Rights. First of all, congratulations. Thank Um, you. But tell us about the book. Awakening is the first book to chronicle the remarkable global impact of the Me Too movement. What started as an online campaign against sexual harassment has now triggered the most widespread cultural reckoning on women's rights in history. Right. You describe how social media has become what you call an alternative public square for women. The Me Too campaign is giving a voice to many women who say they've experienced sexual harassment and abuse. Through social media and marches, many have shared their story. The hashtag being used more than 19 million times. Changes that we're seeing, not just in the West, but but all over the world, is in part because of social media and the Internet. Yes. You know, historically, revolutions have begun when groups discover that their grievances are not, in fact, individual, but they're collective, they're systemic. And in many parts of the world, women have been excluded or underrepresented in the very places where that type of organizing occurs, whether it's the media, governments, universities, and businesses. So in short, they needed the Internet which has now become, as you say, a 21st century public square for women, especially in places where their physical space and activism are constrained by state control. I'm curious about the role of companies in all of this. So you've looked at so many countries, but one of the things that occurs to me about, say, the impact of Me Too in the United States is that, you know, after uh, reporters took on... uh, investigations into, say, you know, Harvey Weinstein or other famous figures, one of the things that ended up happening is that companies would then say, you know what, we're not going to associate with this person anymore. Um, And then they lost their positions of power. How true is the same for other countries, especially in the developing world? Well, it's really a mixed story. I think that If one measures the effect of the movement by looking at the consequences on individual wrongdoers, you would be quick to find that we haven't come far enough. There are certainly instances where we see abusers failing to receive the type of punishment that they ought to, or in some instances, in some parts of the world, any punishment at all. But I think the bigger story is that the movement itself has changed the willingness of women to come forward in the first instance. That has awakened the world to the scope of discrimination, abuse, and harassment against women. And that in and of itself is starting to change cultural norms and disrupt the shame, the silence, and the stigma that previously attended to this issue. I would also add that there are places where we are already seeing transformative progress in a relatively short period of time. Remember, it's only been a few years. And since that time, we've seen 
record numbers of women from all backgrounds seeking political office in nearly every major election. We have seen legal standards rapidly changing where landmark cases on sexual violence have all resulted in victories for Mm. accusers for the first time. And this digital wave of the movement is also inspiring policy reform in Morocco, where dialogue triggered by Me Too re-energized support for stalled legislation that today prohibits sexual harassment, domestic violence, and forced marriage. Or in Japan, a country that previously had no legal prohibition on sexual harassment, the online petition fueled by the Me Too movement prompted the labor ministry there to pass a new workplace provision Mm. that is protective of women. So in just three short years, we've seen remarkable transformation. But the biggest change, in my view, is the willingness of women to come forward, even where they still can't obtain justice. So that is the part that will be hard to put back in the box. Right, right. You know, and you mentioned all these countries and the remarkable progress. Also in your book, uh, you look at, I know, Brazil, China, Egypt, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sweden, Tunisia. And one of the things that struck me in all of these examples in your book is that you make it a point to be clear that your book isn't about the heroic arrival of white Western feminism to other countries. I mean, in in, in most of these countries, many of these countries, women have long organized for their own equality. That's exactly right. What we found was so fascinating in traveling to all of these different parts of the world is that in many, if not most places, the Me Too movement existed before the Me Too hashtag that we know about here in the U.S. went viral. So, for example, in Brazil, women posted under the hashtag Meo Primero Assigio, my first harassment, years before the Me Too campaign went viral in 2017. Uh, In China, feminist activists were making waves online and offline well before the 2017 campaign began here. And also countries like Egypt and Nigeria, Pakistan, Tunisia, all have really rich feminist histories. These are just stories that are too often not told. Rachel, given all of the work you do, some of the data shows that over time things are improving, but a lot of the data also shows that we have such a long way to go. What gives you hope overall when it comes to this issue? What gives me hope is the rapid pace of progress when we've come together as an international community and set goals. So if we think about the most progress we've seen in the last two and a half decades on gender inequality, first, the closure of the global gender gap in primary education, and second, the halving of the rate of maternal mortality around the world, Both of those results came about because the world set targets. When we invested sufficient resources, political will, we were able to achieve transformational results for women and girls and really for all of us. So we know that we can make progress in areas that are often seen as deeply rooted and intractable. The question is, are we willing to invest what it will take to achieve those results? Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
My thanks to Rachel Vogelstein. Rachel serves as director of the Women in Foreign Policy program at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of the forthcoming book Awakening: Me Too and the Global Fight for Women's Rights. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's editor-in-chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julen, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Zamon Perez. Next time on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Bernice King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, to discuss how we can build upon the momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, when my father was living, he talked about this global revolution that was happening during the time that they were fighting against racial injustice. I'm deeply troubled that we find ourselves in a similar state. 50 some years after his assassination. That's next week on our final episode of Global Reboot. <laughs>